Well, good morning, everybody. One of the things about being a human being is we have to learn the ability to wait. I think we've waited about, it feels like seven years to meet outside together. But our, uh, our, it seems like our minds and our societies are programmed to be waiting for the very next thing, right? Kids, we wait right, right now for the first day of school, but then within a couple days after that, we're waiting for what? Summer, Christmas break, the last day of school. As teenagers, I remember that feeling of waiting for our, teen, uh, for our six to get 16 so we can get our driver's license, we can graduate high school, get our first job, go off to college, work again, and then you're waiting for retirement and resting. A lot of waiting in between. We're always waiting for the next thing, vacation, the next chapter. But I remember as a kid vividly waiting for Christmas Day. The period between December 1st and December 25th seemed like eternity as a child. Seemed like an eternity, right? In school, you make those little paper chains, and you take one off every day, and it seemed like that chain somehow got longer as you cut it off. But I was waiting with expectation, selfishly, because around November, we would get the Toys R Us catalog in the mail. And I went through and circled the toys that I want, and there was probably about four things that were not circled in that catalog. And I was waiting every single day to Christmas morning to open up my new toys, at the, at the same point, maybe as valuable was the time with family at Christmas time. We waited in school. You just go through the grind of homework, of getting up early. You go to school. You come home. You do your homework. You do your chores. You go to bed. And you kind of get in this grind of life. But Christmas time, right? It's a break from the schedule. It's a break from the chores. It's a break from the routine. And I looked forward to that all the time because family and friends, we had school, we had traditions, we had class parties, we had all these exciting things about Christmas, and it just kind of rejuvenated us as kids. And for you kids out there and you crazy Christmas light dads out there, I know who you are, only 160 days till Christmas. But kids really get that anticipation for Christmas. I think as adults, that kind of weans and wanes on us. We don't really think much about anticipation. But if we look at our Bibles, we have 66 books in our Bible. And for the first 39 books of the Bible, the people in the Old Testament are waiting and anticipating what we celebrate on Christmas Day, what we take for granted every single year, every single day. The people in the Old Testament were waiting hundreds of years for that moment of when Jesus Christ was born. Their Messiah would come, right? Just when, it, when I got to mid-October and I'm counting down the days as a kid till Christmas, this turn, this new chapter for the people of God, they're anticipating it day after day. And we're in that right now as we study the book of Isaiah. We're studying this big book of Isaiah. It's 66 chapters long. And again, today we're going to look at a, a big chunk of it. But we're going to be looking at the people of God who are waiting with anticipation for their Messiah, what they call their saving and their suffering servant to come. They find themselves in trouble. They see their sin. They see failed leadership, and they're waiting for the Messiah to come and usher in this new kingdom, this new servant coming in to lay down his life to serve and to lead the people. The first 37 chapters of Isaiah we've already covered, and it's mostly focused on how God is the king Sovereign over all things, has all power, is eternal, in control of everything, how he can be trusted. 
But now we're kind of turning over to a new section, a new portrait that Isaiah is painting of God as the servant, how he's not just going to be up in heaven in some throne, some castle with the beard shouting down orders at us, but he's going to come and invade our space and lay his life down for us like a servant. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open up to the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. We're primarily going to be looking at nine verses in Isaiah 42 this morning. And in this passage, Isaiah gives us a a very vivid and beautiful picture of who we know to be Jesus, the saving servant. Now, we are thousands of years farther along than Isaiah, but I pray that this will still give us a sense of eager expectation and joy. Isaiah chapter 42, I want to read verses 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for the law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. That is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, help us see Jesus, your servant, as so delightful and glorious this morning because of this passage. Open our eyes. Spirit, help us. Amen. To a troubling and anxious person of God, this was a very, very encouraging passage for them. Their leader, their savior, their Messiah was coming. The message of hope has now been delivered. And yet for us this morning, we know that the savior, the Messiah, the perfect leader has already come about 2,000 years ago. He has come, Jesus, to seek and to save the lost, a servant of God to lay down his life for us. And though we are not waiting for him to come in the incarnation, he has come and that still should be encouraging for us. We are on this side of history, and guess what? Guess what? Jesus is not going anywhere, and this is the main point of these 11 chapters we're looking at today. I want to give it to you. It's in your bulletin this morning. The main point is this. Be encouraged, church. The true servant, Jesus Christ, has come, and he is here to stay. Jesus Christ has come. And he's here to stay. And that should bring us encouragement. But let's be honest 
Let's be honest with how we're feeling. When I say to you, be encouraged, Jesus Christ has come, that may not evoke exciting, exuberant, ecstatic emotion in you. Maybe you've heard about Jesus your whole life. Maybe you've come to church so many times. You've heard about religion, and we think, well, duh, we celebrate Christmas every year. He has come. We get it, and we get a little dull of hearing it, or it gets a little stale at times, and I hate that's the case, but if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes to say Jesus has come does not excite us. But what I've noticed in my own life and in our world is that when I realize how unsatisfying this world is, when I come to grips with how unsatisfying this world is, Jesus becomes that much more glorious and beautiful to me. When I look out and see there's no perfect human or no perfect leader or a perfect church, I realize that this whole world is full of mess and sins and mistakes and limitations. I then realize how encouraging it is that Jesus, the perfect Messiah, has come. When we see the honest letdowns of our world and our lives, Jesus shines bright through them. Before we look at this beautiful picture of Jesus here in Isaiah 42, we have a couple other characters earlier on in our section that I want to look at. One is King Hezekiah. If you're with us last week, we looked a little bit at King Hezekiah. And the other one is a guy named Cyrus the Great, the king over the Persian Empire. And in chapters 38 and 39, Isaiah paints a portrait of Hezekiah, a king who's fickle with his faith. Later on in chapter 46, we see of King Cyrus, who's a pagan leader, and yet God uses him. But in the long run, both Hezekiah, both Cyrus, any king, any leader, any person is going to fail. And that makes Jesus shine all the brighter. But I want to look at Hezekiah and Cyrus because there's a lot we can learn from their leadership. But I want to call them the servants who have come and gone. Jesus has come and he stays But we have many servants, many leaders, many people we look up to in our world who have come, and guess what? They're gone. The first is Hezekiah. In chapter 38 and 39, we read about him as the king of the people of God. And at verse 1, we see that Hezekiah becomes sick to the point of death. King Hezekiah is on his deathbed thinking about breathing his last breath. The king of the people of God is about to be eliminated. And what does he do? He prays and he begs for healing from God. A great response. In a time of desperation, we should come and fall on our knees before God. And he does that. And God, in verses 4 to 8 of chapter 38, says, I'm going to heal you, Hezekiah. And God says, I'm going to give you 15 more years for your life. You were literally almost breathing your last. Now I'm going to give you 15 more years. But beyond that, God says, I'm going to even prove to you that I'm going to give you 15 more years. And God does this weird, mysterious, miraculous sign. In chapter 38, verse 8, it says this. God says, behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the, di- on the dial of Ahaz, turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the 10 steps by which it had declined. Kind of a strange verse there. 
But in King Hezekiah's palace, there was this sundial, a way to tell time. He'd have an object, and as the sun would move across the sky and the shadow would hit it, they could then tell what time of the day it was. And God says, I'm going to prove to you that I am going to take care of you, and I'm going to heal you, that I'm actually going to reverse time. So Hezekiah is watching this sundial, and God changes the time. There is now more time added to the normal 24-hour day on this day. It is a miracle. So here is God healing a man, turning back time, all of this before Hezekiah. But do you know what Hezekiah does in the very next chapter? After these two miracles, Hezekiah turns his back on God. We often say, right, only if God would act how he acted in the Old Testament. If God would do this miracle, then I would follow him forever. I really don't think so. We're no different than Hezekiah, are we? The next chapter, Hezekiah does something absolutely foolish and disobedient to God. After seeing miracles, he fails. He's fickle. He's a man. In chapter 39, he's reigning. He's healthy. He's a king. And an enemy nation of Babylon comes in with messengers. And they come in carrying gifts, almost like a gift basket. They're sweet-talking the people of God. And they show up, and Hezekiah takes the gift with glee, and then Hezekiah, out of his pride, shows this enemy nation where all the gold and jewels and treasures are hidden in the safe. And guess what happens soon enough? The people of Babylon come in, and take all the jewels and all the gold, right? When an enemy nation comes to you with a gift basket, you should probably be a little alarmed. When you get sweet-talked by Babylon as Israel, as Judah, something bad's about to happen. That reminds me, when I was in college, I, you know, I wasn't really great at communication with my parents. I'd call them once every couple weeks or so on a weekend when I had free time. But when I would call my dad on a Tuesday afternoon he would know something is up. When I would call him, I'd be like, hey, dad, how's it going? He's like, Troy, spit it out. What's going on? What? I had a car problem. I needed money, this or that. My dad knew if he got a call at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday, something was not going good. Hezekiah should have seen that when enemies bring gift baskets to you, things are not going to be good. But Hezekiah receives these gifts. He welcomes these messengers from Babylon. He takes their sweet talk. And then soon enough, Israel itself is captured by Babylon, and they are sent into exile, into slavery. This sweet-talking king from Babylon comes in and takes away all hope, all refuge, all comfort of Judah. And God sends them away with Babylon. God says to them, because of your continued sin, your rejection, Hezekiah, because you are no longer trusting in me, you and the people of God are going to go off to Babylon and live there in captivity. So here's Hezekiah going from trusting in the Lord to be healed to then turning his back on God. And 6th century B.C., 150 200 years later, this exile to Babylon happens. And we realize that Hezekiah, though he did some good, he's not the good, the true, the perfect servant and Messiah. He failed. So here's the people of God now living in exile, not in their homes, not in their land, they're slaves. And if you fast forward to chapter 45 and 46, we learn of another man, King Cyrus. 
150, 200 years into the future, and, God, and Cyrus is the king of another pagan enemy nation, the nation of Persia. And in chapter 45, God speaks to this king, King Cyrus, and he says to him, you are in my right hand, and I have grasped it, and you are going to subdue nations before you and to loose the belt of kings to open doors before you that gates may not be closed. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to use you, Cyrus, a pagan king, to come in and bring my people back to freedom. Right now they're in Babylon, but Persia is going to come in, wipe out Babylon, and bring the people of Judah back to their land. He's going to use a pagan, non-believing king to accomplish his will. Cyrus is becoming the messenger of God. So after 70 years of slavery in Babylon, Cyrus comes in, overtakes the people, brings Israel and Judah back. But is Cyrus the true Messiah, the true Redeemer, the true servant who's going to bring in this new kingdom of peace? No. Cyrus worshipped a multitude of false gods and idols. He was a violent, barbaric military leader, but he was used by God to physically free Israel from bondage, but he can't free the people from spiritual darkness. So here's Israel going through cycle after cycle of leaders, often slavery, set free, often slavery, set free, trusting in these kings, trusting in these leaders, and yet at the end of the day, none of them are fully reliable. They cannot be trusted. Israel was promised salvation, and yet they feel like those promises are unkept. And they keep waiting and waiting. Maybe you feel like that in your life. Are you tired of all these false promises of hope or false promises that are made to you? For example, have you been promised by a politician at any level that these issues are going to be solved if he or she's elected, and when he or she's elected... Are those problems solved? If you lived in Illinois at all, you were told the tollways were only temporary. <laughs> Have you tried that diet plan and weight loss plan and every time it seems to promise you more than it actually delivers? Or maybe at work you've been told you're going to get a raise, you're going to get a promotion, you're going to get a rest from this task, and yet it keeps going on and on, and you are unsatisfied. You are promised all of this new, good, exciting things, and yet it never happens. But even if you do lo lose those 10 pounds, even if that politician does fix that one problem, or you do get a few dollars raised, guess what's going to happen? Another problem's going to come up. Another unsatisfaction is going to be there. We're on a carousel as human beings of disappointment and troubles and pains. Once we get our weight and our job problem solved, something else will come up. And no leader, no plan, no amount of money can solve our issues, can solve our deepest longings. There's that famous interview, now it's probably 10, 12 years old, of, on 60 Minutes where they interviewed Tom Brady. After a couple Super Bowls and all of his money and achieving all the dreams that you and I dream about achieving, Tom Brady says this. He says, why do I have 
three Super Bowl rings and think there has got to be something greater out there for me. I think there has to be more than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And the reporter says this to Tom Brady. Well, what's the answer? And Tom Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Even if you get all that you dream up in life, it can still be unsatisfying. The people of God kept getting leader after leader. They were saved physically, and yet all the spiritual and moral issues happening in the land could not be solved. Hezekiah couldn't do it. Cyrus couldn't do it. They're on a carousel of failed leadership. And then in the midst of all this, Isaiah drops chapter 42. He drops 42. It's almost as if Isaiah is saying, I know your leaders fail you. We see your hurt. We see your longings. We see your fickle faith. We see your inconsistency. But just wait. The true servant, the perfect Messiah is coming, and he's going to be everything that every leader fails to be, and he's going to come and stay. He will not stay dead. So I want to spend the last little section here describing Jesus, that we're calling him the true servant to come and stay. About 700 years after Hezekiah, about 500 years after King Cyrus, Jesus Christ came to earth to be the perfect servant and Messiah and King. God the Father sent his son to lay down his life to accomplish the will of God. And do you want to know what the will of God is? to forgive sinners and bring them into his glorious kingdom. And he sent his son to accomplish that, his son, the Messiah, the true servant. And in chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, we read of a glorious picture of Jesus. And I want to look at just three characteristics of Jesus here. And I want this to encourage you because we are in a world full of letdowns. We're in a world full of letdowns, in a world of sin that promises satisfaction but always leaves us empty, in a world of people who fail us and don't live up to our standards. But we can be encouraged, church, because Jesus has come and he is staying. And you will see that Jesus alone can fulfill all of the needs and the longings and the hopes that we have. So if you walk away just feeling encouraged that this Jesus is yours or can be yours, then great. You may learn nothing factually new this morning, but if you soak in this image of Jesus, I pray you will find him even more beautiful and glorious. The first thing to be encouraged about Jesus is this, is that he is absolutely sovereign. Jesus Christ is absolutely sovereign. Sovereign. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 42. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Jesus, the true servant of God, will establish justice 
in the earth. It's mentioned at least three times in these nine verses. And what do we mean by justice? We mean that Jesus will continue to work and shepherd and lead until all of the earth bows its knee to him. He came to establish justice and righteousness to make everything right again. All the wrongs will be gone. He's come to bring every nation, every person, everything under his rule and reign. There's not one thing on this earth that Jesus is not going to make right. Even the coastlands, as it says in verse 4, even in the parts far west and east of us, Jesus is ruling over So for the people of Judah here in Isaiah's time, there are are nations opposing them, kings coming in to threaten them or sweet-talk them. They were put under slavery in Babylon, yet this coming servant, Jesus, who they looked forward to, will not stop working and moving and reigning until all nations, even Babylon, submits to him. All of creation, all of history is moving towards this, where Jesus reigns over everything in reality. That's what sovereignty means. God is ruling and reigning the biggest authority, the creator. And verse 5 shows that Jesus is the one who spread out the heavens and the earth. Right? He's not, Jesus did not come onto the scene the first time as a baby. Jesus is eternal. He's fully God. He's the one who created all things, the agent of creation. He's the one who gives breath to human beings. We can sing this morning. We can breathe in this moment because Jesus is sovereignly ruling over your breath. Every nation, every air particle from one coastland to the other All things are under his control, his eye, his authority, and Jesus does not take a break. He does not grow faint-hearted. He does not go faint under fatigue. He does not get discouraged and step away when we make a mess of things. Jesus is absolutely sovereign over every single thing, and every single thing will end up bowing its knee to Jesus. Now, Judah, people of Judah had Hezekiah, and he could barely keep his own nation in control. He kept giving in to other nations. He was in fear. He was anxious. He was scared as enemy nations come in. He was not absolutely sovereign. He was weak. He was limited. He had little control. You have King Cyrus of Persia. Though he was a powerful military leader, he wasn't able to conquer the entire world. His domain is no longer here. He's almost forgotten in society. He is not absolutely sovereign. So brothers and sisters, the Jesus who has come and the Jesus who is reigning still is absolutely sovereign. There is no single event in your life right now that he is not working in and moving you towards something. There's no tragedy or trial or conflict or fight that Jesus does not have authority over. Those moments in your life where you feel like you don't have control, guess what? You probably don't, but the good news is Jesus does. So I want you right now to imagine one of those moments in your life. Maybe it's a death of a loved one. Maybe it's a tragedy, a fight, a panic attack, a time where you were looking to hold on to something secure because you could not hold yourself up, whether it be physically or emotionally. That event, 
even in that moment of that event, was under the sovereignty of God. And the reason why you are here right now, alive, breathing, despite that event, is because Jesus is sovereign. Hezekiah could not control his sickness. He had to run to something higher, and the only one higher is God. Cyrus couldn't free Judah until God allowed him to. There's nothing that will come to you that Jesus is not sovereign over, and he's worked out all things in this world towards his good end, and he is reliable, and he is trustworthy. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. Be encouraged, the one who created the earth and has authority over every single thing can be yours. But also, secondly, be encouraged, for Jesus is faithfully loving. Faithfully loving. There's a picture of Jesus being strong and powerful and authoritative. And for many, this has produced a view of God as if he is a uh, celestial policeman just barking down orders from heaven with his gray beard as if he's like that neighbor that says, get off my lawn. But in reality, God, and specifically the person of Jesus, who is sovereign over all things, is also faithfully loving in all things. His sovereignty and his power do not clash with his love and his grace. He's over all things, every raindrop, every election, every nation, every blade of grass. He's over all these things, and he's faithfully loving his people. Power and love, these go together. Be encouraged, church, because Jesus faithfully and loyally loves you. Look at verses 2 and 3. This is the loving attitude and demeanor of Jesus. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus is not this aggressive military leader like Cyrus barking orders. He does not lift up his voice with intimidation. Rather, it says in verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. A reed, a tall, slender, grass-like plant, right, full in fields. If you walk through a field of reeds and you snap one, what's going to eventually happen? It's going to fall to the ground and people are going to trample on it. And yet this says Jesus has compassion and love and he ministers to us in such a way that if we are like a damaged reed, he's not going to break us. He's going to love us and care for us. He cares for us delicately. He is tender-hearted. He is soft towards us with all of our sin, though it's directly opposing him and he hates our sin. He cares for us delicately with grace when we come to him. His first reaction to us is not to shout out condemnations, but to offer us grace and love and tenderness. The disposition of Jesus is mercy. And this whole world is full of broken and damaged people. And Jesus is the only one who can faithfully and perfectly love us. In verse 6, I love verse 6. It says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. 
Church, I want you to read that as Jesus speaking that to you. The Lord in all of his strength, all of his might, all of his power grabs our hands. The arm that could create the entire world, the arm that can still a raging sea, that arm reaches out to delicately and lovingly take your hand and keep you and hold you. He carries us through life. He keeps us when we don't have the power to take a step. This Jesus holding our hand so sweetly and gently, he is not distant. Now, you may not be able to see him with your eyes, and you may feel like Jesus ignores you. But in reality, if you're a Christian, Jesus is holding you and keeping you in this very moment. Now, Hezekiah did not faithfully love the people of God. He traded in riches for exile. He led the people to spiritual disaster. Cyrus did not love Judah. He set them free out of pride, but he was just a a conqueror. He did not love people. But Jesus, his heart's primary disposition is love for his people, a faithful, loyal love. And you, friend, I know You feel this way because I feel this way. We can come up with a billion reasons why Jesus should not love us. We can come up with them. We can convince ourselves that Jesus gave gave up on us a long time ago after sin after sin, after disappointment after disappointment. But in reality, if you belong to Jesus, if you've given your life to him, he will keep you because he delights in you. And your relationships in life may crumble. There may be pain. There might be divorce. You may feel socially forgotten. You may feel unlovable or hurt or abused. And yet there is Jesus, the true servant, laying down his life for us to display his love for us, holding your hand, being tender with you, walking through life one step at a time. When everyone and everything else in life fails you, There is Jesus, and he never fails in loving you perfectly. I remember I moved schools in third grade, and I remember how lonely at times I felt. I was a new kid, and I remember at lunch, opening up my lunch, and my mom did that embarrassing thing where she put a note in my lunch. You know, in third grade, it's embarrassingly, it's a very social embarrassment to open up a note from your mom. And to see those words, I love you, on the page was embarrassing in the moment, but as I walked by my lonesome towards my next class, you know how encouraging it was to know that back home my mom was thinking of me and she loved me? Even in the disappointment and low points of life where you feel unloved, where you feel like no one gets you, guess what? Jesus loves you. He cares for you. And let that secure your heart. He is sovereign over all things. He has all power, and his heart is for you. He loves you. But finally, be encouraged with this one last thing. Be encouraged for Jesus is successful in redemption. Jesus is successful in redemption. Now, by my sinful nature and my sinful disposition at times, I can be a a pessimist, a glass, kind of half-empty guy, But then if you read a chapter like this, you're reminded that every single thing 
can and will be redeemed. Sin and everything opposed to Jesus will be cast out. All of creation and those who are for Jesus will be redeemed and delivered. The old will pass away. The new will come with Jesus. He is successful in this. He's successful in full redemption. And even the stuff today that I don't believe can change. The people, the society stuff, our culture, the things I say, oh, that person will never become a Christian. Well, guess what? All things are possible with Jesus, and he is successful in redemption. Even despite my faith, Jesus delivers. Look at verses 6 and 7 and then verse 9. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Jesus alone is the one who can open the eyes of the blind. Those are people living in darkness opposed to God. It is Jesus who opens their eyes and gives them light. There are those in dungeons and prisons of sin and trouble locked away, and yet Jesus is the one who has the key to open up the jail cell and let them free. Jesus is the one who will take all of the old, and by old I mean sin and trouble and cancer and trauma and abuse and disappointment and hurt, and he will take all of that old stuff and they will pass away and he will spring forth newness, love and charity and grace and joy and compassion and pleasure. Jesus is perfectly successful in taking broken, sinful, weak humans and bringing them to life. He is perfectly successful in taking a world full of sicknesses and viruses and earthquakes and tornadoes and poverty into a new earth of absolute harmony. And he's doing this now, and he will do this finally when he returns. He redeems, he delivers, he saves. So that when we say every wrong will be made right, we mean it. All the garbage in this world will be wiped away and replaced with beauty. All the lies and the gossip and the slanderous words will be replaced with beautiful poems and words of love. All the hatred and the rejection and the abuse will be replaced with tenderness and encouragement and belonging. And all that you have faced that has wrecked you and hurt you, you will be cast out and you only will be taking steps into deeper and deeper joy full redemption, full salvation. This is the Christian's future. Hezekiah could not save the people from, Hez from, from exile. Cyrus could not save the people from their sins and their anxieties. But Jesus alone can be successful in redemption. So 2,000 years ago, what we bring up every single week when Jesus died on the cross, that was not just some moral act, some good example. That was Jesus as a servant laying his life down, saying, I will take all of your sin, 
all of your wrongdoings against the holy God, and I will bear the punishment for you because I love you, and I want eternity with you. So I will take this, I will take your sin to the grave so that you no longer have to be condemned or defined by it, and I will resurrect from the old to the new, conquering death, conquering sin, now walking in a new kingdom and a new heavens and new earth that are to come. When Jesus died and Jesus resurrected, he was taking all of the old and bringing forth the new, and this is salvation. The blind will see, the prisoners will be set free, the old pass away, the new has come. So we beg you, we invite you to receive this free gift of salvation the longings you have, the sin you bring, the troubles you face. Be honest with yourself about them and bring them to Jesus who is the only one who can take away your sin and the only one who can usher you into eternity and into this new reality of joy. Because one day we are going to be running around on this earth together, worshiping and laughing, fully redeemed and fully saved. It's going to be a glorious picture, church. The new is coming because the servant has come. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that before time itself was created, you had your hearts set on us, that you would love us, you would care for us, you would bring us even all together in this very moment by your for your glory and by your will. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, who has not given themselves to you, that they will this morning. They will be filled with salvation and the joy of salvation. For those here who are broken, who are hurting, who feel like their life is a mess, I pray you will comfort them and show them your compassion and your mercy. Lord, we praise you that you would love us perfectly despite our sin. Jesus, you are glorious and you're beautiful. In your name we pray. Amen.